Thank you for downloading this episode of the Nerdball Podcast. I'm your fearless host, Lorenzo Melcher, down in my basement, um, awaiting nothing because the interview is over, but the illusion is that it hasn't started yet. So um, this uh, this run into this is now my second episode of the new year. Um, and we're having really, I'm still having fun, guys. I say it every time, and you know, thank you all for downloading. Uh, listening to this podcast, commenting on things. Uh, it's great. And I'm having a lot of fun. The YouTube has picked up, um, which is reflected in the audio only downloads. So uh, I don't know if people are, more people are coming to it or just taking it uh, in a different way. But either way, a lot more views on the podcast. I got uh, up to, I think, 140 subscribers now. Um, so it's exciting. It's cool. And I'm uh, I'm going to keep doing it as, as long as I have people to talk to, which is there's a lot of people. I think there's like 7 billion people on this planet. So I have a lot of people to choose from. Now, if they want to come on here, great. Um, again, thanks to all of you for always being here, listening and watching the podcast. The episode today, uh, a little bit different um, than what I normally do. Normally I sit down and interview people about their life. But this episode was a specific episode. I interviewed, <clears throat> excuse me, Kelly Weiner Smith about the book her and her husband, Zach, wrote called a city on mars um and i um it, so it was just about that and it was great um it was a good book for me because i terrified of space and space travel and uh this book said yeah here's some possibilities and things we can do here's also things that will probably make it very difficult uh it's an hour-long interview we just scratched the surface on the book i recommend getting the book i listened to it on audible uh city on mars by kelly and zach wienersmith check it out um it's uh, it, it's great. It has an audio snob. The audio, uh, listening to it was great too, and uh, so please check that out. And uh, thank you for listening to the episode. Hello, I'm Kelly Wienersmith, and this is the Nerd Bowl Podcast. This is the Nerd Ball Podcast with Lorenzo Melcher. Great, Kelly. Thanks. Uh, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Uh, I, oh, I, I meant to look up um, the last episode you were on, and then I forgot. So <laughs> it was okay. a while ago. We talked about bugs. Uh, it was cool. I was very interested. Uh, but you're coming on this time for a different reason. And uh, just to get it out there, when I when I asked you to come on the podcast, uh, I had not read or listened to the book yet. And then uh, when you said yes, I'm like, all right, well, I better do this. So I crammed the past uh, two days whoa <laughs> i i listened at uh, two times speed which is is not a, a new thing to me i listen to podcasts at two times speed all the time so uh -huh. my ears my ears are pretty um pretty adapt to that kind of stuff um but the book uh a city on mars that you and your husband wrote um is why you're on here and again th i told you before we started recording but thank you for for agreeing to come on the podcast it's really cool i'm excited to talk about this um because Thanks i think we, yeah I, I had so much fun last time i was excited you asked me to come back oh awesome awesome well well thank you um I, I think we talked a little bit about space travel the first time uh just a tiny bit and i told you how terrifying it is to me um i don't <laughs> even like flying yeah i don't even like flying in airplanes so uh this book uh just to give overall for for me like it was cool because uh since i don't like travel space travel uh -huh. The things you guys talked about, I was like, well, here's why it wouldn't work. And here's this. And here's that. I was like, yes, thank you. I feel like whenever people talk about traveling to the moon or Mars or wherever, they're like, yeah, this is going to be wonderful. This is how it happens. But you guys like took a good approach to say like, yeah, possibly. But here's also some things that aren't going to work. Yeah, it, it might be awful. And it, it was so my husband and I started off as people who were really excited about the idea of going to space and then became people who weren't. I mean, I don't think either one of us would have volunteered to be one of the first people to go back to the moon or anything mm. like we're we're wimps we don't want to blow up in a rocket but we are sci-fi geeks and after writing our first book together we felt like oh my gosh settlements we could like maybe do this in the next couple decades and the more research we did the more we're like no no like it's way worse than we thought and we're way farther behind than we thought uh and that book that is our uh delivery of that downer message did, did it make you 
because you said you were so like, yeah, I think there's something we can do. And then by the end, you're like, no, not really, uh, not not soon anyway. Did it make you like sad? Like, man, I'm kind of disappointed in ourselves for finding all this information. Yeah, so it made me sad. And then also like, I had kind of made friends with a bunch of the people in the settlement community mm-hmm. and they are way more optimistic about the near-term prospects than I am. And I feel like if you... If you hone in on one problem, you can see how that one problem can get fixed. And then you're like, well, there's nothing holding us back. But when you zoom out and you look at all of the problems together and how expensive and complicated they will all be and how the pieces fit together in this like complicated puzzle, it's much easier to be far more pessimistic about the near-term prospects. And so I was bummed out that I'm probably not going to see settlements in my lifetime. And I was bummed out that all the people who I contacted saying, I'm writing a book about how settlements are coming soon, uh, were probably going to think that I was like being disingenuous and dishonest because that book ended up being about how this stuff's not coming soon. And so I apologize to a lot of people like, oh, I'm sorry, I I meant it. I really thought it was going to happen. I wasn't lying to you. Well, well, being in, involved with something like scientific, like that's the point. Like the point is to hash out all this stuff. Here's my hypothesis. I'm going to go with this. And I just discovered that it ain't going to work uh, because of these these reasons. And that's that's the point of science. Yeah, thank you. And so I wish <laughs> the entire community was filled with people like you. Like, you know, these are exciting problems that we still need to solve. And like the the path to get there is exciting, I think. But since the book came out, We've had a lot of people say very nice things and been be, you know, say like, oh, it's really nice that we have all the problems set out or, you know, a lot of the problems set out. So we sort of know what we still need to do. But um, another person referred to us as the enemy after reading our book uh, and somebody else refer or compared our book to Mein Kampf, which was oh my Hitler's book. I know. Right? Like, come on, man. There's a very different scale and being like, oh, I think maybe space settlements are a near-term possibility and like the genocide of millions. And so like, <laughs> I anyway, uh, people have, we, we've had polar reactions. A lot of people have really liked it. We had a lot of nice reviews, but the people who are really into settlement uh, are not, are not happy with us. Well, I think that that's probably what makes a good anything is when you have people on both sides that are like, yeah, this is, I read it and it was awesome. And then I was like, I read it and I did not like it. I mean, regardless, people read it. Um, but but it makes it makes uh, you know conversations then need to be had, right? Even if for the people that didn't like it, then they then they talk more about it. Or maybe, just maybe, maybe there was one of those people that are like, um, I don't agree with you, but let's talk about this. Or maybe they talked about it amongst other people, and then they kind of change their mind a little bit about this particular thing. Maybe they still think overall it could happen, but you know that that's that's what's good about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, in a perfect world, that's what happens. And I do hope we've started some of those conversations. I think when your book gets compared to Mein Kampf, you can be yeah. like, okay, we're not going to have a productive conversation over here. I'm going to focus my energy over here. Uh, but we we have had some productive conversations. That's really cool. Because, because again, that's that's why you, I would imagine, I never wrote a book. That's, I would imagine, that's why you write a book, is to get people talking about it. So that, um, it was good. And so, and overall, too, I feel like you could make tiny books out of, like, all these chapters because everything was like, all right, here's a big issue. Um, and here's how we work through it. Uh, and I feel like, I think you even said, and some of them are like, um, we could talk more about this, but you know, our publisher said we probably shouldn't be, you know, nerding out so much about all these things, you know, but I feel like it could have been more for each thing. Uh, Each chapter could have been a book and it was so painful. And so, you know, the book was, is 400 pages long. I'm amazed you managed to audio book it in two days. Uh, that's heroic. Uh, but like, you know, it was, there was a bunch of chapters that got cut where our editor was like, this book can't be a cube. Like you need to write it. it, We need to cut some. Uh, and so we've tried to find different homes for those chapters, but yeah, there's, there was so much more that could be said. And we've, I think the most common complaint we get from people who aren't refer or comparing us to Hitler is something like, oh, I wish, I wish you had told me more about how the nuclear reactors work and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh man, you know, there's so many tough decisions that go into writing a book about what gets cut and what stays and anyway yeah could have could have written a lot more well well that's i mean as someone who's not like super into uh, a lot of these things like you you made a point to to tell the readers like hey we could really go in depth here but here's a little bit and sometimes that even a little bit was like i was like uh i don't i don't even understand that part of it so you but you did a good job of of, of telling us that 
you know, there's way more out there or, you know, this is kind of nerdy. So we're, we're going to turn people off if we add these things. So, so it was cool too, because then he felt like, okay, well, this book is for people who, uh, who are really like the idea of going to Mars or, or like space also for people who don't and who aren't like super into the, those, you know, technical words and all that kind of stuff, because you helped, you know, for lack of a better term, dumb it down a little bit so people can understand. Thanks. Yeah. I, I think the hardest sell was the four or five chapters on international law so like when, <laughs> when we told our editor we're like we're gonna do five chapters on international law she was like uh i don't think anyone's gonna want to read a book with five chapters on international law and it, but we we felt like it had to go in there because it's just so important for understanding what the risks are moving mm -hmm. forward and understanding you know how unclear the rules are and how it could spark conflict and so we tried to make it as funny as we could we did tons of outside reading to try to find like stories to make it exciting but yeah it's uh it's tough the, yeah. the more i mean law is a tough topic to make interesting sometimes but uh we did our best well and, and that was my like biggest thing was like how can we make how can we make going to the mars or moon or wherever uh, another civilization how we can make it work there if we can't even make it work here and you know part of it so th that was like my big thing is like there's no way people are going to completely change how they live their life and it's not even just like the overarching of uh, like people need to own things like that's just a, a, something that humans i gotta own this or i gotta own that or i gotta own this land and then like cooperating is not something we're really good at uh even some <laughs> stuff simple as composting and recycling is something that we're trying to drill home to people that that's good to do that people just don't do it so how are we ever gonna <laughs> gonna get there just on that piece well, and so space there, there's this idea called the overview effect and you hear it often like what if an, you if an astronaut is interviewed they'll say something to the effect of you know you look down at earth and there is no borders and you see how we could all work together. And there's this frat or this tiny blue ribbon around the earth. That's our atmosphere and we need to protect it. And the view of earth from above makes all of this clear. And so the idea is that all of these problems that we have are going to be solved. Cause if you look at earth from above, then it changes everything about the way you view the world and politicians are going to get along. And, but that's ridiculous. Like, yeah. so one you can see borders from space. Yeah. I got to interview a cosmonaut and he's like, which is a Russian astronaut. That's their equivalent. And so, uh, and he was like, you can see North Korea and South Korea. And you can see, I think it was uh, Pal uh, India and Bangladesh or mm -hmm. something like that. There's like a couple places where you absolutely can see borders and they represent conflict on earth that is visible from space. And there's all these stories about astronauts, like one astronaut came home and her boyfriend left her for someone else. So she tried to kidnap the girlfriend and like, we are humans on earth. We're going to be humans in space. It doesn't matter how pretty the view is. We're going to come back home and fight. Like, that's just, that's what we do. We're going to be humans in space too, I think. But I'm maybe a pessimist. No, I, I totally agree. Like if, if you can't even... You know, if you have to put up a fence in between you and your neighbor because, you know, you had an argument one time and now this is just seems like the best solution. Like, how, how are we going to be able to go? You know, I think I think in the book, it said it takes six months to get to Mars, I believe. I, I can't remember yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, but how are we going to go six months away? And then if something happens, uh, you, you want to go back. To, like, it ain't going to happen. And it's it's frustrating that that I'm sure there are people out there like, yeah, it's just going to be it's just it's it's new. So everyone's going to be different. Everyone's going to be it's like. No, sorry. Everybody projects utopia onto space settlements and you get all <laughs> of these different utopias. You get, you know, some people are like, oh, we're going to be, everyone's going to be able to be individualistic. Freedom is going to reign, blah, blah, blah. And then other people are like, well, we're all going to be communal and we're going to share a lot better. And like all of these different ideas that don't match together are somehow mm. all going to come true in space. And it seems highly unlikely to me, um, but yeah. Anyway, who, who knows? Uh, so, yeah, so yeah, that that law part, the inner, the you know, it was interesting. Um, maybe not five chapters worth would have been interesting, but it, interesting in the part you put in there because it is it is such a big deal to uh, you can't just go somewhere and be like, all right, now we're starting. I feel like there has to be a starting point before you get there, and I think mm -hmm. that that plays a big part of it. You know, regardless of how boring it may seem to somebody, it is an important thing to be like, hey, we got to know what this is. We got to know where we're going and we got to know what we're doing before we get there. 
Well, and, and I also think it's interesting. So, okay, so Elon Musk is the guy who runs SpaceX and who's driving Twitter into the ground. Uh, and he um, he's really into this idea of settling Mars. And so he'll say on Twitter that like, we're going to have boots on the ground by 2029. And two to three decades after that, we're going to have a self-sustaining settlement. And in the Starlink terms of service, so Starlink is his internet provider, which is providing our amazing connection today. Uh, he, um, he's he got in the terms of service, it says something to the effect of, uh, and if there's a civilization that starts on Mars, it's going to be, you know, un unbound by the laws of Earth and it's going to be its own thing. And like, so a bunch of the stuff he's saying straightforwardly violates international law. There is a <laughs> treaty from 1967 that the U.S. has ratified and all the major spacefaring powers have also agreed to as well that says you cannot claim land in space. So he's like, you know, we're going to go and we're going to set up our little area and we're going to have our own laws. And like, no, the Outer Space Treaty says you can't claim land and that people who come from Earth still belong to the nation that they came from. So like Elon Musk is still going to be the United States' responsibility. He's mm. still supposed to follow international law. And so I, I felt like it was helpful to know that a bunch of the stuff that you hear in like pop culture stuff is violating international law in a way that will no doubt make like Russia and China, you know, very angry uh, if we were to go ahead and actually violate those things that we've, you know, signed on to for, I think, more than 50 years. Yeah. And, and well, him, Elon is yeah. his own dude anyway, and, and he is going to say all that stuff and do everything. And, and so it, I would imagine that it is frustrating just uh, when you're the head of the United States or part you know, space programs or this or that. And this guy's just saying all these things. You're like, Oh, you know, you're, you're unaware of, of what's out there already. And like, he also has billions of dollars. So it's hard to, like, yeah, because, because the world works through money. Like it's hard to tell this guy, no, because you also probably need him for some other thing, you know? Yeah, so one of the <laughs> biggest surprises to me after the book came out was how much geopolitical power Musk actually has. So, uh, you know, when Russia invaded Ukraine, they managed to knock out a bunch of Ukraine's internet connections. So it was hard for like the Ukrainian military to communicate. And so they ask Musk, can you send us your Starlink satellites? Because they talk to space and we can bring these like dishes with us anywhere and like the internet can move with us. And so he said, yes. And he sent a bunch of these dishes and they went to Ukraine and this really made Russia angry. And so Russia said at a United Nations meeting something to the effect of like, hey, you know, we're just saying that if satellites are being used to provide internet to, you know, this country that we're at war with, although they didn't say at war because they're calling it a special military operation, but they're clearly at war. But anyway, yeah. uh, we would have a right to blow those quasi-military satellites out of out of space. And they do have the technology for blowing satellites up in space, for like shooting at them from the ground. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, Musk was like, it seems like he got scared, which I would get scared too, because he's invested a lot in that. And then he decided he was going to start limiting where those satellites could be used. And so like the Ukrainian military would get some of their land back and they discovered that they couldn't use their internet in that new area because Musk had like blocked it off because it was in like the Russian territory, you know, a week before or something like that. Yeah. And so the US government and the Ukrainian military had to talk to Musk to be like, hey, can we please get internet service here? And Musk was like deciding where Ukraine could get their military uh, like intelligence, how they could pass it around over the internet. And I think since then, the United States has like uh, worked with Musk to figure out a system for how this is all going to work so that it's not so like you got to literally call Musk, you know, yeah. Monday morning to be like, hey, can we please get another cup of internet or whatever? But like... <laughs> um, and so anyway, I was surprised by how much power he had. But at the end of the day, the United States... A common thing that I hear people say is like, how is anyone going to stop Musk if he makes it to Mars and he wants to do his own thing? And the answer is that he's not allowed to launch any of his rockets without permission from the U.S. government. And so if he gets a bunch of people to Mars and they're not following international law, it would be the United States' responsibility to say, we're not launching any more resupply ships until you guys fall into line and like start following the treaties that our country ratified many decades ago. So you do have some power over what he does when he gets there. Cause you could essentially, you know, starve them all out by not letting them get, you know, food from earth. So that, anyway, that, international law is interesting. 
that sounds terrifying too is is you're you're six months away and you're like hey um yeah we're not we're not giving you anything i know you guys can't make food yet and i know you can't do all this stuff and now we're just not going to give you anything uh right yeah, so and scary. if you don't get your act together soon, you have to wait another two years because like, you know, the way Mars orbits the sun oh. and Earth orbits, they're not always like in positions where it's easy to send a rocket back and forth. Yeah. And so, you know, if you miss that window, it's like, well, you got on two, for two years, you're on your own. Um, It's it's scary indeed. And especially if it's like because Musk is being a jerk, like Musk being <laughs> a jerk has ruined my Twitter experience, but at least it's not ruining my food supply. Like that would be uh, that would be worse. Yeah. Um, th that was a, a thing too, is, uh, I wrote down here, um, oxygen, oxygen as a utility. And that was something in my brain because when, obviously we're here, we're, we're not in space, but we got to pay utility bills for electric and, you know, gas and water and all that stuff. But when you're going somewhere and you need different things, I feel like because we go back to the thing of people needed to own things and have the rights to stuff. And I feel like that could be a thing too. We're like, Hey, we have the settlement a thousand years from now. Uh, you didn't pay your oxygen bill, so now we got to shut it off. Like uh, that stuff seems scary to me, but it also seems like something that could happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, so there's this guy in the UK. His name is Charles Cockell, and we were hoping it would be Cockle, like it, because it, it looks, you know, as Wiener Smiths, we were hoping there'd be like a fellow <laughs> funny last name, but he made it very clear that no, no he does not pronounce his name oh. that way. But anyway, good for him. <laughs> he's above us. But uh, but so he 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 has this idea that like if you're in a habitat that's connected and probably like for economic reasons you'd have just like a habitat that is all connected as opposed to everybody having their own individual pod you'll have people who are in charge of the oxygen supply and so like you said you can charge people for oxygen which like you know that's interesting like do people who exercise are they going to have to pay more yeah. for their oxygen supply but also if you've got somebody who's controlling oxygen that's like you can that's profound control over people. So mm -hmm. like you, you know, if your lights are switched off, you can survive. If someone's threatening to switch your oxygen off, you can't. And so, you know, he argues that this creates an environment for like authoritarian governments where people can have a lot of control by threatening to kill everybody by controlling the oxygen supply. But, you know, you'll get other people who say that space is the perfect environment for freedom. And I'm just not sure how they, how they can defend that argument personally. No, no, not at all. There is wherever we go, there's always someone telling you to do something or yeah. how to do something or who, what you can have. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. oxygen in space is scary too. Cause like, so, uh, you know, so there's this, the famous story of Apollo one, which was like a simulation on the ground where they were sort of running through what would happen in space and the entire environment in their little simulation capsule was pure oxygen which is highly flammable. Yeah. And so it caught fire and three astronauts uh, were killed in the fire. Mm. And Russia had a similar, they were doing a similar sort of simulation and uh, Valentin Bondarenko was in a all oxygen environment and he had just finished the simulation and he had a little ethanol wipe and he was wiping off a little bit of like sticky stuff on his arm because he had a medical sensor there mm. and he meant to throw it in the trash, but he missed and he threw it on the hot plate. And so he also died in an oxygen fire. Uh, and so... And, and like, so, so you can have less oxygen to sort of take care of that problem, but still, whenever you're generating the oxygen, there's a problem. And so like some of the scariest parts of the research process to me were reading about problems that happened in space. Hmm. So on Mir, which was a Russian space station, uh, their oxygen canister, so this like little thing that runs a reaction that generates oxygen for everyone to uh, to breathe, something went wrong with it and it started shooting fire out oh like can you imagine being in the middle of space and like the the your tiny little habitat is filling up with smoke and there's a huge fire and i and this was around the time that the soviet union was falling apart and so like the equipment they were sending up was low quality they couldn't get like new equipment regularly and so they were putting on oxygen masks so they weren't breathing in the smoke and the first couple they put on didn't work because they were broken. And so they had to get new ones and they finally got the oxygen canister fixed. And then they all had to like literally get naked and scrub the chemicals off of their body. And so they were like, you know, four men in space, totally naked, scrubbing off in the middle of like floating in space. And then they had to put a new oxygen canister in. Can you imagine the moment where you're like, oh, I hope this wasn't from the same batch and it's not going to happen again. And uh Anyway, so everything is scarier in space. Like you can't just escape when something like that happens. And there's all these stories about like on the ISS, everyone's like, oh, 
guys, you got to stop the experiments because we got to go find the leak. Like, are the sensors oh saying there's a leak? God. And it's like, oh my gosh, the vacuum of space is slowly leaking into our habitat. And apparently it's not that hard to patch tiny leaks, but like, can you imagine? No, <laughs> no, it's ter- the, the most terrifying thing to me is, is just free f- something happening and you're just free floating in space and you can't get to where you're supposed to get back to. And you're just like, well... I guess this is it. Then I'm just, I'm just another piece in the space and in the atmosphere now. And it's, it's, you know, uh, like I said at the beginning, it's all terrifying to me. And this book uh, solidified my need to never go near space. Um, and I'm happy with that. I'm okay with that. Well, you know, uh, connecting to our last conversation, space doesn't have bugs. So I have no <laughs> desire to go to space because the cool stuff's down here. But <clears throat> sorry yeah. about that. Oh. There, no, there was good. one other particularly scary story, and I'll, I'll keep it short. It was a an earlier, so it was a Salyut space station run by the Soviets. And they were going around Earth, and the power goes out. And just everything gets dark. And so, like, space stations are very loud. There's all, you know, all these machines generating your oxygen, cleaning the air, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden, it's dark and quiet and silent. Uh, and they go, I guess their, their, like, radio home still worked. But back then, they didn't have enough sort of, like, uh towers and like facilities all around the earth so there'd be areas where you couldn't make contact there were like Mm. dead zones and so they called the soviet union and they were like the power just went out and then they went into a dead zone and they couldn't get any help and everything was off and like and i guess they figured it out after like 10 15 minutes i I don't know how long it took for them to figure it out but like can you imagine the power going out Mm. and then you losing your connection with the engineers who could tell you what was wrong like uh, yeah, my children freak out now when the power goes out for 10 seconds. Right. Yeah, mine too. Mine too. Yeah, it blips and they're like, ah. Yeah. And I'm like, no, we can still breathe, guys. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yo, oh my gosh. I didn't even think about that. Like the power's out. That's creating your oxygen. You right. said it and I, it just blew over my head. Yes. Oh my gosh. It, everything. I mean, you, you supremely depend on technology and space, mm-hmm. but like for everything. And so, you know, when Musk says something like, you know, in 20 to 30 years, we're going to have a self-sustaining mars settlement that means that you don't need anything from earth anymore no earth equipment and so he's he's saying that in 20 to 30 years they're going to be making like their own computer chips and generating their own oxygen canisters and like and making their own laptops like i just don't see that level of you know industry and technology in the next couple decades uh eh, anyway well well, you yeah you even made a point to i mean all this stuff is very intricate and something that's vital to our society now is cement. And you made you made a point to talk about cement is that, you know, how we do how we get in construction equipment up there and even lubricant and all this stuff like and, and we want to make microchips. Yeah, everything is 5000 times harder in space and 5000 is probably an underestimate. But like, <laughs> you know, so Be- Jeff Bezos, who you know was the CEO of Amazon, he's got a company called Blue Origin and he. His vision isn't Mars. His vision is rotating space stations. And this was an idea that became popular in the 70s. Uh, and the idea is if you rotate the station, you can create gravity that's similar to what you have on Earth. And so if it ends up being a problem trying to develop in a lower than one gravity or lower than the gravity we have on Earth environment, then these habitats would sort of solve that problem. Um, but part of his like excitement about those facilities is that we could do all of our industrial work and all of the stuff that causes pollution in space. And then that way we can make earth pristine again by like putting all the bad stuff up there. Mm -hmm. And so cement was just one example where it's like, when you start to think about the details, it becomes impossible. Like the moon is horrible. So we, it has, so like, you know, two weeks on earth the moon's nighttime is that long and it's daytime is that long that long too but it gets really cold on the moon because it has no atmosphere and so we like don't have lubricants that work well when it gets that cold and trying to like work through the dirt on the moon it's like different than what we've got here it's much sharper so it's like abrasive and it wears down your equipment and it kind of gets like chunky uh and so it like gets clogged up in equipment and anyway yes trying to drop enough cement on earth so that we don't have to make it here is a ridiculous idea um and just a quick aside because i just happen to have a conversation uh about this because everything in your book is so like uh, obviously it's a lot of research and that kind of stuff did you did you and your husband talk about the difference between cement and concrete <laughs> um did i get it right are you asking because i got it wrong well i i guess i 
It's all right. Tell me. Tell me. Did I get so, it wrong? So con- cement is in concrete. Mm-hmm. So con- concrete is a mixture of cement, water, sand, and some other stuff. So uh-huh. I, I just didn't know like what you, like I technically you didn't because you still need cement to make concrete. But mm-hmm. I, but people use those interchangeably and they're not interchangeable. They're not the same thing. I think in in the thing I just said, I did use them interchangeably because I have to admit that I forgot the difference. Yeah. But yeah. when I was doing the research, I did know the difference, I think. And I hope I didn't get it wrong, but maybe I did. Uh no, you- I think you're you're fine, and okay. we're getting way too much into this, but it's funny to me because <laughs> I think you're fine because as long as you're using the word cement the whole time, it is a thing. And yes, you still need cement to make concrete, so it makes sense. Uh, but when you when people use them interchangeably, that's when people get it. Like especially construction people are like, no, you're you're, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, I I tried because one of them I think you, as you just said includes water. Yeah, and you wouldn't bother getting the water from the moon before you ship it down to Earth. You just use water from Earth. And yeah, so I yeah, think yeah. I tried to use whatever word doesn't include water, but yeah, and yeah. you nailed. Then you nailed it, and that's what I was trying to figure out. So you got it. good, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just the only reason I brought it up is because I, I like I said, I just had a conversation about it. We were walking around my park, uh, looking at broken sidewalks and stuff, and we were people were kept using the same, those two words, and my boss was like, you know, uh, those are two different things, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, yeah, we're good. <laughs> and at one point, I knew the difference, but it yeah. has. Uh... <laughs> Since escaped me. Uh, and that's all right. When you write a book about space, I think the least the, the thing you need to know least is the difference between cement and concrete. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I had to know it, you know, while I wrote that page. But yeah, uh, yeah. And, and in general, my memory is awful because I am like such a product of my generation. And if I can take notes on a Google Doc, I'm like, this doesn't have to go in my brain because I can always just, you know, search for the word. Uh, so there's a bunch of stuff I've offloaded to my Google Docs. And uh, yeah, I have I have a terrible memory too. And uh, actually I just had a meeting with uh, one of my assistants and it was, it was me, my two assistants and my boss. And we kind of had like, um, cause Hey, my boss called the meeting. He's like, this is a safe space. We want air grievances, this and that. And everybody's fine for the most part. But one of my, one of my assistants is like, um, I, sometimes I don't come to you for, if I have a question, because sometimes when that question, when I ask you that question, that's where it goes to die and nothing happens with it. And I'm like, I'm well aware of what you're talking about, man. I know, oh and I'm trying to be better at it. And I have post-it notes everywhere in my office, like all these things people ask me to do or this or that. And, you know, I, I'm well aware that that my memory is not where it should be. And I, I think it's more ADHD than my memory. Um, but uh, I'm trying to get better at that. But either way, anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, my memory is awful also. My, my daughter also is like, Mom, did you remember to do blah, blah, blah? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I love you. Thank you for the reminder. <laughs> My reminder is always another email saying, hey, did you do this yet? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> um, <coughs> uh, just looking at my notes here. One one interesting thing to me is, um, and this is a big shift from memories and cement, but uh, the idea of, so obviously, in, in especially in the United States, white flight is a huge thing, and it's still a thing. Like, people are still... Th- pe- white people are going to run out of room that they call their own eventually, you know, and it's still a, a real thing that's happening. And the idea of, so I think in the book, you called it celestial white flight was interesting to me too, because uh, I thought of it a couple ways. Like, yeah, um, I think again, white flight is still happening also because of the wealth distribution in this country. Like it is going to be white people that are going to, to space because that's just how it works. Um well, when you guys t- wrote about this, like, like, what were your thoughts of like, I guess, explaining this or understanding like, yes, there's probably, this is probably going to happen if, if, and when it happens. Yeah. So that, to be honest, that was a, an idea we hadn't thought about uh, on our own. So it was, there's um, a professor named Kilgore DeWitt who wrote a history of sort of race and space. And, uh, and so he pointed out that, so there's backing up for a second. So the rotating space station people, they argue that there's going to be, there's so much, so many resources in space that you can create so many of these rotating habitats that if you're living somewhere and you don't want to live there, you can just move to a different habitat. And and that way we can like, if you're having problems with people, you can just move to a different place and we're going to have all of this mobility and it's going to make life so easy. And so Kilgore DeWitt pointed out that, you know, this could just result in white flight going up to the stars. You know, if you're in an uncomfortable situation, you just use your money to move to a different rotating space station. And and I think the problem of money is, as you 
just pointed out is going to be magnified in space because it's going to be so much more expensive to move from one place to another in space. And this also gets into immigration questions. Why I don't mm. I don't know why people in space think we're going to have like open borders for all of these different habitats where we don't even have them on Earth. Yeah. And on Earth, like if someone moves to your city, you don't worry if there's enough oxygen for everybody. Like you worry about jobs, but like the problem is compounded. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's there's all of these questions about inequality that, you know, when you start thinking about these problems expanding into the into the stars, into the heavens, it gets it gets really uncomfortable. And we, we had somebody like in particular in response to that celestial white flight point say like, oh, you're so you're telling us that space is racist. And I'm like, hmm. no, the argument is is more like subtle, like. But we should be thinking about this stuff because we want to make sure that when we go to space, you know, we got a lot of problems on Earth. If we slow this down and we can try to make sure those problems don't follow us to space, that would be great. Like, can we think about how we can move to space without expanding inequality? Uh, and those are difficult questions. Yeah. And people already don't like being uncomfortable. Like, yeah. it's, you know, it, it's not a good feeling. When when I when I go to uh, a new place, uh, I'm immediately uncomfortable until I see someone that looks like me and it makes me feel a little bit better, you know? And, and yeah. so it's being, being uncomfortable is, is like I said, no one wants to do it. So, so they're going to make it the least uncomfortable they can. They being the people that go up there first, you know, and, yep. and it, it, it kind of leads into the, the part when you guys talk about the psychology of, of space and, and people like having issues and, and, you know, in, in dealing the the things that astronauts have to do now in order to get into space and then getting up there and having to deal with all those other things that um i don't know the exams and stuff but maybe there's probably not a question is like do you like black people you know that's probably not a question that gets asked uh but then when you go up there and there's all these people and you got to deal with that up there then instead of and, you know it's like you said it's a lot easier um to deal with it here uh not to say the the solving part of it is easier but but you're not trying to you know, take away people's oxygen or ho or hog other things, you know, food and that kind of stuff that now you have to deal with because, um, as you said, astronauts are liars, you know, so, and everybody is. <laughs> so, so when you get up into space, everything changes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so, so far on the space stations, things have been pretty good. And I think partly that's because there's like extensive training and like cultural sensitivity lessons. And I do think that like they, they have a bunch of activities where they're like literally, like drop you in a tundra somewhere where it's really cold and you'll be with their group and you have to just work it out for a week before they come pick you up again. And so I think that they figure out like, okay, is this somebody who is going to treat another member of the crew as lesser because they don't look like them? And then that person doesn't get to go to space because you need to be a team. But when you stop having those, and I'm, you know what, and I'm sure it's not perfect. I'm sure there's still a, yeah. a ton of problems. Um, I shouldn't make it sound like they've got it all figured out because nobody does. Uh, no. But, but when you start opening it up to like, you know, whoever can pay for a ticket or something like that, and you've got even less oversight, these problems are only going to get worse. And, you know, if you're on Mars and you don't have like, so if when you're on Mars, the shortest communication delay is three minutes. And when Mars is farthest from Earth, it's 22 minutes long. Okay. So if you need to talk to like a psychiatrist, psychologist back home, like you can't have that live conversation. And so, you know, you're really out there on your own with, you know, working through the problems with the group you've got. And so you, yeah, these kinds of problems are going to become even more pronounced when you're sort of stuck in space together. Yeah. And um, the, the stories you talked about in the book, you guys talked about when of people cheating on, you know, cheating on exams or hiding, hiding symptoms. And, you know, because they know like, well, if, I know this is how they want me to answer it. So I'm going to answer it how they want me to, because I want to go into space, you know? And, and then when you, when you throw into the fact that, Oh, these now, now it's just uh, seemingly random people that can afford to go. Well, who, who are you to tell them? I just paid half a million dollars to go to space. Uh, you're not going to tell me I can't go, you know, yeah. and it can be any of these people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and lying <laughs> is yeah one of the, so we read literally dozens of astronaut biographies and, and you would think that those would be interesting because astronauts are like, Oh man, astronauts, they get to go to space. But most astronaut biographies are awful. These are <laughs> not good writers. They think that you care about the details of some like tiny engineering problem. And they'll go on for pages and pages about this tiny engineering problem. And, and anyway, it's really boring, but 
almost every single biography had a lie that someone told along the way. And sometimes it's a lie of omission. Like one person, it was like a week before he was going to go to space. He thought he was having a heart attack and he didn't tell anyone because mm-hmm. if he wouldn't be able to go. And it's like, imagine if he had had the heart attack, like while his crewmate was doing a spacewalk or something yeah. and he was inside, like they really depend on each other up there. And so in, anyway, yeah, the, the incentive system is absolutely geared towards lying because you don't want anyone to know you're having a physical or a psychological problem either before your flight or on your flight. Cause you want to make sure you get to go and maybe even go again. And so like one guy, this was before the era of like electronic medical records. Mm-hmm. They let him carry the folder with his medical records across the country to his interview. So he just took oh out the pages gosh. with bad stuff. And he, I mean, he even admitted, he's like, if they, if I had a glass eye and they asked, do I have a glass eye? I would have lied to them. Well, like, <laughs> well, they stared at me and I would have been like, you prove it. You prove yeah. this is the glass eye. Uh, and so anyway, they're, they all admit to uh to lot not all of them many 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 admit to yeah. lies uh to make it in and to stay in. Well, everybody everybody here did that with COVID, you know, to to some degree, maybe not at the beginning, but towards the end. Like, well, you know, I might have it, but I'm not going to test for it because then you got to then, like you said, you got to prove that I have COVID right now, and yeah. you know, and and you know, so it, it's just the nature of of human beings. To if they're gonna do if they want to do something they're gonna find a way to do it uh, regardless if it's bad if it hurts people or doesn't hurt people I, I did like when you were describing like the perfect uh, astronaut or the person going to space you you said a hyper confident Ned Flanders <laughs> and I started laughing because I immediately pictured Ned Flanders when he takes his shirt off and he's jacked oh, I didn't <laughs> remember that yeah yeah he's just good dude and also he's ripped. <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, that's like, uh, oh, what is his name? Chris Hadfield. I don't know if he's ripped, but he's he seems very Ned Flandersy to me. And they're all like, yeah, hyper focused and great in an emergency, but also calm. And I, they're very rare people, not not like most of us. And even they're lying. And and I think, you know, we we're really good at lying to ourselves, too. Yeah. And so, you know, you'll get like a little runny nose and you'll be like, okay, maybe this is the start of COVID. But, you know, we're also getting kind of close to fall, which is my allergy season. And the tests yeah. are expensive. It's it's probably allergies I don't need to test for it, even though there's part of you that knows like, oh, I should be testing. And yeah. so, you know, we're good at lying to ourselves, too. Well, e- even uh, I- I'm still getting over sickness. And that was the first I did a tele tele visit with my doctor and they're like well first thing you gotta do is test for covid and then basically then i can help you and i'll give you an antibiotic if it's negative I said, okay so uh, i mean i wasn't going to even though like you said everyone knows they should so i did and i was negative and then they sent me an antibiotic and i was good to go but you know it, t- it took my doctor to be like no do it please and then we'll go from there <laughs> yep yep yeah um the another chapter was talking about doing uh settlements somewhere other than mars and you, you guys phrased that at the beginning, like, we're going to do, like, I forget exactly what you said, but the least worst, the, what did it say? Like, it, there are the least worst options. option. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and you started with asteroids, and I'm like, wait, that's the least worst options is <laughs> asteroids? I, I mean, space is awful, like, profoundly awful. And, yeah. like, so, you know, the, the moon is not going to be good for it. Like the moon is a great place to learn about how to not die in space because it's close. And if something goes wrong, you can get back in like two or three days, which, you know, thank goodness the Apollo 13 crew certainly uh, benefited from that. Mm -hmm. But if you go to Mars, you know, as, as you said, it's six months there, six months back. And because of orbital mechanics, you can only start the trip back like every two years or something like that. So you're really stuck. You want to have everything figured out before then. But Mars has a lot more of the stuff we need to survive. And so it's the best place probably uh, to start a settlement. And then after that, you know, like Mer- we talked to some people who thought we read a couple proposals who thought that Mercury would be good. And so Mercury is closest to the sun. So it's really hot. Like yeah. when when it's exposed to the sun, it's like pizza oven hot. But when you're on the part that's not exposed to the sun, it's like, you know, freezer cold. So (laughs) they were proposing that you could. So there's this spot where it's like dusk, you know, like the day is turning to night and the temperature in that little spot isn't so bad. Yeah. And so they were like, you could put your settlement like on wheels and just follow that band that goes from day to night as Mercury 
turns and like rotates on its axis. And so your, you know, your settlement would have to move like a mile a day. Mercury spins pretty slowly, uh, like every day. Otherwise you like burn up in a fiery inferno. Like, so that, that doesn't sound like a good idea to me. Um, no, no. Yeah. And then Venus is so hot that the average temperature melts lead and it has so much pressure that like you wouldn't care that you were melted, b- melting away because you would have been squished already. And there's sulfur- sulfuric acid clouds over your head, right? Like that, just- That's what you- <laughs> Sorry. Uh, whenever I laugh now, I cough. But this, uh, I wrote down, I thought it was a good phrase. You're like, Venus atmosphere is above and below hell. That's right. That's right. It's so bad. But but so this, I, I so like above those sulfuric acid clouds, the temperature is kind of like Earth and the gravity is kind of like Earth. And so there's a bunch of people who are proposing putting settlements. And I don't totally understand how this would work, but like mm-hmm. in Venus's atmosphere. Uh, and to be honest, I thought that it was like one person wrote a weird proposal about how this might happen. But after the book came out, the Humans to Venus organization contacted us and they asked us to like chat with them over Zoom. So we had a, you know, a talk and they were trying to convince us that like, no, Venus is a good plan. And we were like, oh, like you guys have really interesting ideas Mm -hmm. and you're asking good questions. But anyway, I I would not want to live above sulfuric acid clouds. (laughs) Um, And again, no bugs. So not worth it. Yeah, no bugs. And then, <laughs> and then the asteroids are so far away that it's going to be really cold. Solar power is going to be hard. So the asteroid belt is out past Mars. Um, but there are a lot of resources out there. And so people argue like you could hollow out the inside of an asteroid and you could live in there while you mine for water. But I think most people agree that that's like a sad existence uh, and that maybe you'll just have people out there like temporarily to collect resources that maybe you'll bring to Mars, uh, you know, but like, then you have the gas giants, which you can't live on. And then you can't have solar power the farther out you go. Um, or you can, but not enough to like have a settlement. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, I mean, most of, most of space is just awful. It's just awful. <laughs> uh, you mentioned, uh, you know, when you mentioned asteroids of living underground and I feel like that was a theme and it's even the cover of the book is like i feel like the answer to a lot of these things is like well it just it's just got to be underground that's just the easiest easiest solution yeah and, I, yeah oh sorry no no and even like um but even that it, it, it makes it sound very simple like yeah that's the answer but even that obviously there's a bunch of questions for that and, and issues go you know for for that part of it living underground yeah so that we sent uh to mars a surveyor or a a piece of equipment that's that was meant to like drill down something like a meter so that it could like measure Mars quakes, you know, like Mars geological activity. And it got down like a couple inches before it just couldn't get down any farther. Like I, there was there was a number of different problems, like it was compacted where they were uh, and the equipment kept slipping. And but like, that's how good we are at digging on Mars right now. Like it's it's complicated and you're not going to know how complicated till you get there. But I think one of the biggest surprises to me while researching the book was that we're probably going to have to live underground because you know all of the artistic renderings that i had seen were like these beautiful glass domes with looks you know you can look out at the heavens you can see the earth rise from the moon um but like so radiation in space is different than radiation on earth and there's lots of it and we don't understand it well and so but if you bury yourself under meters of dirt you're protected from it. So if it's going to kill us, that's one way to protect us. Plus space experiences massive temperature swings, which is going to be really bad for your equipment, you know, expanding and contracting over and over again, day after day. Mm-hmm. But if you're under dirt, that reduces your temperature swings. And space has tons of debris that's like shooting down and, you know, impacting the planet and possibly going to poke a hole in your habitat. And having a meter of dirt over you helps protect against that too. So there's a lot of reasons why we're going to likely bury our habitats under dirt. And so now you're like, you've moved to Mars to live as like an ant and like, or a mole or something. And it's just, it's not at all like I had imagined. It makes, it makes the dream much less beautiful, I think, to imagine that you're living underground like that. But it it sounds like your dream. You can live like a bug. That's well, you know, I don't know that I want to be like, I like watching them like from afar, partly because it makes me appreciate being a human even more, especially when I'm watching the parasitoids. Could you, uh, 
I'm sure you've imagined it. Like if you go to another planet and you're digging around and you find a bug, like I'm sure that has crossed your mind. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. would be incredible. Yeah. I, I, first of all, um, uh, equally terrifying is finding other living things on other places, um, yeah. which I'm sure they're, they're out there. Um, but I don't like to think about it, but as someone who, who enjoys bugs as much as yourself, like I would feel like, uh, that would be your number one mission. Like, Hey, uh, Kelly, you're going to Mars. Uh, you got to do all these things uh, so we can survive. Uh, and then you're like, okay, well, I'm also going to look for bugs. Yeah, right. Well, yeah. I, I mean, so I, it's possible that that Mars has like bacteria because Mars used to be warmer and wetter. Mm. Um, and so I, I think it's an interesting question. Like what happens if you do find bacteria and you get some indication that humans being there is going to like kill the bacteria because they'll be, get like outcompeted by our bacteria or something. Yeah. Do you care about that? And I think- Maybe most people would say, absolutely not. I like, you know, I'm happy. I happily use bleach on my toilet every day. Like, I don't care about the bacteria. Um, but, you know, as like a someone who has spent a lot of time reading about like evolutionary biology and stuff like that, like it would be very interesting to see like a whole new, you know, life is arising for the first time somewhere else. How is it different than us? And I, I do feel like you have, there are interesting questions about how we should sort of re restrain our activities somewhere else if we do discover life. So that we can, you know, at least understand it before we encroach upon it more. Um, I don't think. <laughs> I you think don't that, care. <laughs> I don't think people care. I mean, look how they treat the Earth right now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Fair enough. Far more beautiful, amazing creatures are uh, going into decline. They probably don't care about the bacteria. Um, but I, I agree with you. It's probably something that should happen. Um, and maybe you know, depending on the people who go, like that, that is a thought in their mind, or or they are told like. Guys, this is this is brand new, and if you if we introduce stuff or if stuff gets introduced into us, uh, this whole thing is done. So um, maybe maybe the threat. Well, <laughs> I was gonna say the threat of death, uh, but people don't care about our climate, and that's probably gonna kill us too. So, ah, <laughs> uh, what an optimistic tone we're uh, hitting here. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean that's the other thing people talk about. You know, we're going to be able to like engineer Mars one day to be uh, this nice Earth like habitat. And I'm like, we can't even keep Earth nice. How are mm. we going to start from like worse? Like, if we can fix Mars to make it Earth Earth like, why can't we fix Earth yeah. to like undo what we're doing? And uh, these things are way more complicated. Why? Yeah. Why can't we spend all the, that money to help where we currently are? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, uh, there are a couple other things uh real quick i know i know um i don't want to keep you too long but uh the i'm assuming uh the chapter chapter nine on inputs and outputs was uh something that a lot of people find interesting because it is it is very human to mm -hmm. have to go to the restroom so it's uh, uh i thought it was funny and then the, the thought of floating poop particles in in your space station was gross it's so oh, gross so gross <laughs> say that the questions they get asked the most are about how to use the restroom and every single station that we read about had a story about feces escaping and floating around and one one space shuttle group called them brown trout yeah and i'm like oh this is so this is so gross this is so gross you never know when you're breathing in like aerosol feces uh my mom told me one time and it it and now it never it's, it, it's always in my brain now she told me um lorenzo did you know when you flush the toilet stuff sprays out of the toilet at uh some ridiculous miles per hour i'm like mm -hmm. i did not know that mom and now i'm forever gonna know that there's just stuff shooting it changed how i like brush my teeth now in the restroom um mm -hmm. it's oh and and once you hear something like that you just you can't unhear it yeah yeah no, i'm working on redoing <laughs> my my bathroom right now like demolishing it and starting again and i've been trying to figure out like well where do i store the towels and i was gonna like put a shelf above the toilet and then i was like wait no stuff shoots out of the toilet like <laughs> can't be where the towels go and then yeah. the teeth brushes need to be on the opposite side of the vanity from the toilet so that they've got a lower probability of poop particles but ugh, yeah 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 that, I, that oof, gross um <laughs> another thing too I, i'm sure you came across and some of them you you told i'm sure you came across really like funny stories that it, a didn't fit anywhere or you had a cut or whatever the one and i heard it i heard about it before it was uh the when, when it was i think it was a comedian talking about it how um they didn't know how many tampons to send so they're like ah just send 100 
and uh-huh. uh and, and I, I thought that was hilarious mm-hmm. um and it also goes to shows like they didn't even like talk to the females like uh, uh, enough to know that maybe this is too many you know that <laughs> I, I i like the math you did though in the book is like all right well we're gonna send this and then double it and then add more <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that that's how NASA solves pretty much all their problems by sending excess equipment. And I do feel like the one part that ruins that story a little is that uh, Ray Seddon was one of the women in the first uh, class of astronauts that included women. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was on the committee that made the decision about how many tampons to send. Ah. And she's a physician. And so she was like, you know, like people vary in how much flow they've got. And we don't know what it's going to be like in space. And so she's like, you know what? That's fine. Let's just send tons of them. But apparently it was like, you, you know, you see those musicians or magicians and they pull yeah. out one handkerchief and another is connected <laughs> and going like forever. I guess it was like that with the tampons. They had all been sort of tied together and it was like, this thing is never going to end. And uh, anyway, yeah. So NASA does solve problems by overdoing it on the equipment. Which to me seems weird. Like I feel like you're trying everything's calculated, and when you're taking shooting rockets off, maybe maybe it's better now. But when you're shooting shooting off from space, I feel like, well, we gotta ha- we have a limited space, and we gotta figure out how to you know what we're taking in. But maybe it's different now. I don't know. Maybe you can just take whatever the hell you want, and everything's okay. No, no, I mean, it's and it's still expensive. So your your space is limited, and I think Zach and I calculated this like a week or two ago to send an apple to space at current lowest uh, freight rates on like the cheapest rocket it's $300 per apple so like I mean that's where we are so you you don't have a lot of space to send stuff you got to really pack those capsules and each you know the mass of everything is expensive at least tampons don't weigh much but uh that's true they take up a lot of space if you've got that many yeah (laughs) did did you come across any other things that you weren't able to put I I love well I was gonna say this at the beginning I forgot the the ask one of the aspects of this book was that it was funny that part of parts of it funny and, and you know I, I do comedy uh from time to time and so i like that part of it and w- when you could talk about things that are very scientific and then throw a joke in there uh or like a made-up word or something where it, like gets people to laugh it kind of like breaks the trance a little bit as opposed to like all the scientific stuff i know for my brain sometimes i lose what i'm reading i'll read a whole page like wait a minute i didn't i didn't even like comprehend i got to go back but all these things like break up that that a little bit and so i enjoyed that part of it so that's why i'm asking like are there other like funny things that you guys could not include because it's a giant book yeah well so first thank you i really appreciate that compliment coming from you because you cracked me up and i again (laughs) like i thought you were just so hilarious when you officiated my brother's wedding oh Um, thank you yeah that was i'm glad that yeah i so i'm glad you thought it was funny but um yeah so there's there's tons of stuff and actually uh, one of the things I've been debating wanting to do in the new year is creating a podcast just to sort of share the funny stories we didn't get to put in the book. Yeah. I just don't know if anybody, I don't know how many people would want to hear it. Cause a lot of it is about like cosmonauts and the Russian side of things. And uh-huh. I don't think we're looking for like feel good, funny stories from Russia right now. Um, but, but you know, there's also a lot of bad stories from Russia that we yeah, could do, yeah. but, um, but anyway, so yeah, there's there's a lot of stories that were a lot of stories that I wanted to go into more detail about, mm-hmm. like the woman who went on the first space station and was handed an apron. Uh, that <laughs> oh, was shit. horrible. Like I was so upset oh, when I read that. Um, and so yeah, there's you know humans. As we said, humans are humans on Earth, and they're humans yeah. in space, so they do funny stuff in space too. And yeah, there's there's lots of good stories. Well, if you ever feel the need, I was just going to tell you. Um, I was going to tell you after we recorded, but I'll just tell you now. I, I enjoy talking to you. You're really good. Uh, some people just aren't good at having conversations. Um, and, and it's, and it's fine. That's just how people personal for people's personalities are, but you're really good at having conversations. Uh, and as an audio snob, your audio sounds really good. So that's another thing that like, <laughs> in my ears, I'm like, Oh, this makes it better, you know? Um, but if you ever want to get those stories out, like you're more than welcome to come here and do it. I know I don't have a gigantic audience, but like if you, if you would rather not put time into, creating a thing and not knowing if people are going to listen to it and, you know, editing and all that kind of stuff, you know, feel free to to come on here whenever you want and, you know, share these stories, especially if it's like, Hey, Lorenzo, I got, uh, I got 15 minutes. Can I come on and tell a story? Like I'll, I'll, I'll take it. Oh, I love that idea. Thank you. Cause I think I've talked myself out of the podcast, but there's a bunch of stories I'd like to tell. So yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Yeah. Even if we set a time up, we're like, Hey, we got, I got an hour. I want to record a bunch of stories and then we can, we can decide how to put them out. But 
but everything everything about you uh is perfect for podcasting like i said the, oh, the audio portion is like is really good but but you're a good speaker and uh, another quick thing speaking of of talking how do you how do you guys decide to when you would be the ones reading the audiobook and uh, not having somebody else do it yeah. Well, so, well, I, first, I also want to say you are a wonderful conversationalist, which is why I was so excited when you oh, asked me you. that. We always have, and, and nobody has asked me about the celestial white flight thing. And so, like, I appreciate oh. your willingness to be like, this is uncomfortable. Let's talk about the uncomfortable thing because mm-hmm. um, it's important. But um, so for Soonish, uh, they try, which is the book that Zach and I wrote before, mm-hmm. um, they tried to get a big name to read the book, and but they started the process way too late and they couldn't get anyone. <laughs> And so they were like, I was like, you know, I love the sound of my own voice. I'll do it. And they were like, okay, so we'll send, they sent me into the studio. And so I read that audiobook, and Zach read our like short little stories that we put in between some of the chapters. Um, and so that's how I ended up reading the first one. But then in this one, um, I offered to do it, but I said, you know, but if you can find a professional, that's like whatever puts the book, makes the book easier for people to listen to. And so they yeah. found a professional to do most of the reading, but they wanted us to read some of it because we're not so bad at it. So they were like, well, it might as well. <laughs> uh, and so Zach and I split the little stories, yeah, which we kind of regretted because one of the little stories has a lot of hard to pronounce names. <laughs> and so we were in the studio for a really long time debating the pronunciation and asking chat GPT, how do you say this? And um, anyway, but but it's fun. Like I, when I was in high school, I wanted to be in a grunge band. And, but I didn't want to practice. (laughs) And so like that didn't work out. Um, But when I got to be in a studio for the first time, recording, recording the first audiobook, like the guy who ran the studio, like loved nineties music. So we were like geeking out about grunge Mm. rock. And it was, you know, a a weird way to feel like part of that dream had sort of come true in a roundabout, like life never takes the path you think it's going to, but it Mm. was fun to get to be in a recording studio for whatever reason, even if it was a nerdy book and not a grunge band. (laughs) Well, all those like little things that that you get a taste of it, and you're like, all right, well, I think that's that's all I needed. I like, I felt, yeah. I feel fulfilled now. You know, I I wanted to to um, buy my grandma's car, uh, and it was it was only it was like three three thousand dollars old car, 1985 Monte Carlo. It was their daily driver when they picked us up when we were little kids. My yeah. uncle was selling it. I was like, all right, well, all right, I think I want to buy it. So I I drove out there with Andrea. Uh, we drove it around. Uh, and then I, I pulled back in the driveway and I told Andrew, I was like, I don't think I want to buy this car. I was like, I think I just needed to be in it one more time. And, yeah. and, and that was it. You know, that's all I needed. I just needed that feeling. I, I didn't, I never drove it before. I was always in the back seat, you know? And so it was cool just to be in it. And I, I that's all I needed. I felt good. Would I, would I love to have that car? Sure. But there's so many issues and things with the old car, this and that. And I just felt like, this, that's all I needed to say, you know, same like for you, like you want to be in a grunge band and you did this little thing and, you know, and you felt good about it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, no, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it sounded good. Like you guys did a really good job. Uh, the book, the book's amazing uh, as someone, again, as someone who's not super into this stuff, like I really enjoyed the book. Um, and, uh, I was just talking to, we were at a friend's house last night. I was just talking to them about, about the book and, you know, if it's, it's, something they're interested in it's because it isn't like it's not fiction it's like here are these things here are real problems here are real issues you know and and it's also funny like i said so uh thanks for coming on the podcast this is awesome i i feel i feel honored that you want to come on here and and talk about it uh and you know it's i tried my hardest to uh to get as you know good questions because i'm sure you've been interviewed by a lot of people so i i don't i don't want to feel like uh so tell me about your book, you know, that, that kind of stuff. So <laughs> no, this, this was awesome. And to be honest, a lot of our interviews, it was clear they hadn't read the book. Like they mm-hmm. read like the, the back of the book has a series of questions like, what would it be like to use the restroom in space? What would it be like? <laughs> and, and one interview literally just went through the questions on oh. the back of the book. I was like, you didn't. Oh. But it, and so anyway, to be interviewed by someone who read the book and it's so much fun talking to you. I'm honored you invited me back. I had a lot of fun. Thank you. Well, good. Yeah, thank you. And and we'll be talking because I think uh, I think there'd be other people that would want to be interested in those stories that uh, that didn't make the cut. So. Oh, perfect. That sounds great. We'll chat about them in the new year. Sounds good. Thanks, Kelly. Yep. Thanks, Lorenzo. Thanks again to my guest Kelly Wienersmith for coming on the podcast. To talk about her and her husband Zach Wienersmith's book, A City on Mars. Uh, it was a great, great episode. And hopefully, she comes back on to tell us more stories. Uh, that did not that did not make the cut into the book or for the book so um, i'm looking forward to that 
So please, uh, please check the book out. I will put the link in the comments. Uh, I guess the easiest thing to do is put the Amazon link in there. Uh, I got it on through Audible, so that was good, uh, good to listen to. Um, but uh, yeah, please check the book out. Book out again. It's called A City on Mars. So thanks for Kelly, to Kelly for coming on the podcast. Um, thanks to all of you for always liking, sharing, reviewing, subscribing the podcast to the podcast, commenting, um, emailing, sharing notes, that kind of stuff. Any interaction is good interaction. Uh, so thank you all for doing that. Uh, continue to share it, everybody. Uh, continue to share your you know favorite episode or the podcast in general, uh, so other people can find it. If you want to come on the podcast or know someone that would be a good guest, uh, email the Nerdball Podcast at gmail dot com. Um, that's it. I hope you everyone had a good New Year. I know it's a couple weeks past that. Uh, looking forward to twenty twenty four. And as always, thanks to Real JP Multimedia, Cuttlefish Graphics. Big Daddy Graphics and Perrysburg Junior High STEM Lab for always helping out the podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.